The following is presented to you in a round sound. It was recorded with whatever was lying around. Insist on respect the sister, walk around like a woman is. She won't speak unless it's something worth saying. Don't play the girl, take herself so seriously. People stare curiously. She's got a natural way, her hips sway furiously. Yeah, the luxurious thing. Carries herself like the cutest, most prettiest thing you've seen this side of the bay. Hey, this is Lady Don't Take No, your weekly roundup of all of the real and none of the fake. I'm your host, Alicia Garza. This show is pro-black, pro-queer, proudly feminist, and pro-do-what-you-like. Every week, you're going to get the best of what goes on in my head, what we loving on, and what we hating on, what we might be, and what we ain't going to do. Politics, pop culture, Jesus and Miro got beef? We cover it all. We know that no matter where you are, it's a challenging time, a changing time, a time of transformation, It's all the things all the time nowadays, but we are going to help you understand the dynamics of this time every single week. So be sure to tune in, tell a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We do it for the culture, so the pod is free 99, because we know that with a country in chaos, the least we could do is keep you from putting your money anywhere else than where it's needed. Our guest this week is an outspoken gender equity and LGBTQ rights advocate. She's currently running for District 6 supervisor in her hometown of Frisco, California. She serves as the chair of the San Francisco Democratic Party. By the way, she's the first trans chair in the country and the first black chair in San Francisco's history and the first black trans chair in San Francisco's history. I mean, the first, the first, the first. She's a co-founder of the Transgender District in San Francisco. Again, the first legally recognized transgender district in the nation. Oh, and check this out. She's the singer, the sanger, honey, for the new metal band Commando. And we are absolutely going to talk about that in a little bit. Please welcome Honey Mahogany. Hey, honey. Hey, my love. How are you? Oh, my gosh. I am... Okay, I've been promising people I'm not going to give fake answers, but I'm also okay. not going to give all my business. So mm. I'm here and I'm really happy you're here. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. Well, I will just say, because I don't think people can see you, that you look stunning. Oh, thank you. Yes, well, you know, absolutely. I just came from lunch with um, Aria and Miss Dominique from the Okra Project, and it was so cute. I love seeing not. my people. I did. I love seeing my people oh, in Atlanta. God. It like makes me feel so good. So, honey, I got to ask you... Contrary to popular opinion, we are still in a motherfucking pandemic. And yes, Mm. people, I did get my fourth booster shot just last weekend because I'm not playing games with Miss Rona. What has your pandemic life been like? Have you developed any unique habits live and direct from Miss Rona? Ooh, unique habits during Rona. I mean, I think one thing that I've just really embraced is the mask life. Like, mm-hmm. I love wearing a mask because especially on those days where I don't want to paint a face, I'm like, yes, let me Hello. put a mask on, <laughs> cover up half of it, and put my glasses on. You know, I'm ready to go. Um, but I think that the pandemic for me has been interesting because on the one hand, I you know, definitely felt isolated. But I think I finally learned that I'm truly an introvert. Mm. 
Weirdly, like mm. I am a performer. I have been out there. I do community work, organizing social worker. You'd think I'd be like some sort of like, you know, totally social butterfly. But I, I actually really enjoyed the alone time and the mm. quiet. And it didn't mean that I wasn't working. I was like working nonstop, but I just had it in my own space. And I really enjoyed that. So I think like for me, part of it was like spending time at home, like taking care of my home, taking care of myself a little bit more and being a little bit more relaxed about it, but also still being able to be productive. Um, now, is that a good boundary to have where you're working at home all the time? Probably not, but that that is my life. You know, no judgments here. I mean, we're all trying to fucking figure it out. And I can 100% relate to the introverted extrovert. I could do the things I need to do out in the world, honey, but I also need to like recharge for like 80 hours after mm-hmm. I have to interact with mm-hmm. people. So I so feel you. <laughs> Let me ask you, I mean, look, we are in a whirlwind and- Thinking about the state of politics in this country is inspiring this next question. Also, my homegirl, Dory, I'm going to give you a shout out again, sis. She was like, is you going to change up these questions? Because y'all been talking about the same shit for two years. So, oh, Dory. Yes, yes we, we love, love her. Dory. We love her so much. <laughs> so here's my question. Can you tell me a story about a time that you changed your mind and what happened? Think about something that you were really convinced about was like 100% right. But then your perspective changed. Yeah, I think I have a good story for this one. So um, many, many moons ago, I went to, on this show called RuPaul's Drag Race. Yes. And, you know, my- Shout out to Ru. <laughs> uh, shout out to Ru and all my girls. So I really thought that that's what I wanted to do with my life. Like I loved drag. Drag like saved me in so many ways. And it's still, I think I, I still go to drag shows and I'm still like, you know, I still have that like sense of awe and inspiration and joy when I go and watch them. And even when I perform, you know, Mm. but at that time I was like, I really want this. I really want to do it. I want to be on the show. And then I got there and I experienced what reality TV was really like. And I was like, "Mm, this is different than I thought it would be. (laughs) And, you know, I just don't know if this is for me, but I still kind of want this because, you know, this is a platform and da, 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 da. And so then when I was up for elimination on episode, I think four or five of that season, um, I remember being in front of the judges and being like, this is some bullshit. Like I should not be up for elimination, but this is real and this is happening. And so then I had this moment where I was like, do I want this? And I at the time was like, yes, I want this. But I also had this moment of like, okay, universe, God, whoever is out there, like, Mm. I'm just going to open myself up. And I really want this, but I don't know that it's the right thing for me. Mm -hmm. And so if there is a better path for me to follow, then I am open to that. And I was double eliminated, the first double elimination in Drag Race history. And so it felt, I mean, yeah, you know, at the time I was offended, but then I was like, oh, like (laughs) I opened myself. I made the decision in that moment, like not, not only was that to give up a little bit of control and to sort of just accept and figure out how to move forward. And so it went from being like, I want to be America's next drag superstar to being like, okay, maybe this wasn't for me. And there's another Mm. path forward. And Mm. what happened? I went home and started organizing and I started getting involved with politics. Baby. And now you're fucking running for District 6 supervisor in San Francisco. (laughs) And we are going to talk about that. Thank you, Rue, for double eliminating our (laughs) homegirl from Frisco. We didn't need your shit anyway. Right. That part. (laughs) I'm just kidding, Rue. We love you. We love you. Honey, you got to tell me, 
we talked about the fact that you are the singer for a band. Yes. So I, um, well, I've been performing, you know, all, all my life and really, you know, for, I was a performer full time for a while. Um, but now I'm just knee deep in politics. But I was right before the pandemic, you know, I got together with some friends of mine. I think, you know, some of these people, you know, um, Krylon Superstar from oh, Double yes. Duchess um, yes. and um, Lynn Breedlove from Homobiles and yes. Tribate. And then also there's Drew Ariola Sands from Trap Girl and um, Juba Kalamka from Deep Dick Collective. Come um, through. Yes. So we formed this little super band um, called Commando. We just played South by Southwest. We played the Independent here in San Francisco and we're flying down to play Outfest with Big Frida um, this Saturday. Baby. It's It's... Yeah, we released an album. It's been it's been really well received. It's so so much fun. I never knew that I would be a new metal girl. It is a new metal band, but um, it's so powerful. It's all the lyrics are about our experiences as Black people, as queer people, as trans people, and um, just about fighting for yourself. And um, it's been such a joy and really a healing moment for me to be able to take time away from campaigning to make music and make art with my friends. So it's been a joy. Yes, I'm with the shits, and I actually like metal so yeah i'm coming check okay, out okay commando you can check us out on all the you know spotify itunes all that stuff mm. okay so i want to get into your run for supervisor but i also want to talk about how you got into politics because mm. I, I just feel like there's a lot of people out there right now that are like, I could never, ever do that. Like people who do politics, who run for office, who are elected officials, they must be like some special person that falls from the sky, already equipped with everything you need to be a badass. And I really like to pull back the curtains on some of this stuff. I really want to be like, no, that's not actually how this happens. So talk to me a little bit. How did you first get into politics? What motivated or inspired you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is not a future that I saw for myself. I mean, girl, if you thought that I was like, I'm going to be, you know, supervisor one day or I'm going to work at City Hall one day. No, that was not the plan. Mm -hmm. I really uh, got involved because I wanted to make a difference. But it's interesting for me because now that I'm, you know, having to talk about these things, looking back at not just my history, but my family history, I'm like, oh, this actually does make sense the way that this has played out. You know, my family came to this country as refugees from Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. um, my mom's family, interestingly enough, um, my mom's father, my grandfather, was a senator and an ambassador back oh, home. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, it's not something that my mom really talked about a lot, but, you know, she grew up predominantly in Mexico, kind of all over the world. And then when the empire fell, you know, everything sort of crumbled. Yeah. She ended up, you know— the family ended up losing everything and um, she ended up working for Ethiopian Airlines. Um, that's where she met my dad who had grew up very different life, son of a tailor, very poor, but, you know, ended up uh, getting an Ethiopian student scholarship to med school in Greece oh, wow. where my parents oh, wow. met. Um, yes, it was. I mean, it does sound very romantic, but then my, my father was involved in a student group that was um, protesting the military coup that took over the government and the dictatorship. Um, yeah, and, there was a whole bunch of shit that went down in Ethiopia, child. Yes, girl. Okay. It was, you know, uh, yeah. So A lot. Uh, there was a lot that happened. Uh, my father was involved in, you know, the student uprising at that time. And uh, he lost his citizenship. And when he lost his citizenship, that lo lost him his Ethiopian student scholarship and then lost his visa. He lost his visa to stay mm. in Greece. And so mm. he and my mother both fled came here to San Francisco as refugees. And, you know, we grew up in, in, in the outer sunset. So it's interesting 
you know, I grew up in the outer sunset. When my parents came here, they really wanted the American dream for their mm-hmm. children. Um, and they believed the way to achieve that success, like many immigrant families, is through education. And so they sacrificed a lot. My dad, you know, he worked, he was in medical school in Greece, but when he came here, none of those credits transferred. He ended up becoming a taxi driver, worked for 30 years as a taxi driver for Yellow Cab. Mm. Um, But he put us through school. Um, So we went to St. Gabriel. It's the church that um, my parents were married in. I was baptized Mm. in and that I went to school where I went to school. And then I went to uh, St. Ignatius after that. And, Mm. you know, I was really privileged to go to those schools. Um, And I think it actually did really shape my character a bit. Like, I struggled with a lot of the Catholic Church's teachings, like, listen, I'm queer, I'm trans, I'm all these things. And I needed to find something to identify with to like to make sense of my world. And the yeah. part that I clung to was a part of being of service to others and mm. the part about being the change you want to see in the world. And so from a very early age, I was involved in like Amnesty International and advocacy work and human rights work. And, you know, I eventually, you know, got my master's degree in social work at UC Berkeley. Um, that led me to doing a lot of things. I did outreach counseling on the streets with homeless and at-risk youth, getting them off the streets and into care with Larkin Street Youth Services. Um, I was the mental health director for a community mental health center in the East Bay, actually, Contra Costa County, where I worked in the schools and also with people displaced from San Francisco mm. who were placed out in the East Bay. And that's where I saw the heavy costs of displacement. Yeah. So many, specifically Black folks, so many trans folks who were displaced from where they were living in San Francisco out into Pittsburgh and Antioch with no connection to community resources, not even like a BART station at that time. And like, you know, what I saw was that it became a life or death issue. Like literally people were, you know, attempting suicide, overdosing. It was life or death. And so that really motivated me to say like, you know what, like, I love this work. I love, you know, being a part of people's recovery but I also feel like there could be more that I'm doing to actually prevent this from happening, this displacement from happening. So I came back to San Francisco and started organizing. I mean, one of the first things that I did was organize around the stud. Uh, the oh, stud yeah. was threatened with closure. Yeah. And uh, I got together with a group of friends. We uh, bought the business and the liquor license. And 17 of us, we for- formed the first uh, cooperatively owned queer nightlife venue in the country, saved it for five years. Um, and, you know, unfortunately we did close during the pandemic, but we are looking for a new home right now. Mm. That really taught me how important it was to be connected to your local officials and politicians and, and supervisors and representatives, because without their help and support, I don't know that we would have been able to do the things that we needed to do to change, you know, zoning and, you know, get the business approved yeah. and get the legacy business status. Like, All of that was as a result of advocacy um, to create those programs and then also part of like having those relationships with your city officials and government. So I quickly learned that it's really important to know who those people are and then also to get involved so we elect the right people. That's right. Um, That's when I became president of the Harvey Milk Club. That's what drew me into becoming elected to the San Francisco Democratic Party and becoming chair. And that's what also led me to... um, working as chief of staff for, you know, former supervisor, now assembly member, Matt Haney in yep. district six. Yeah. That's, so that's, that's how I got into politics. It wasn't something that I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to be elected. It was more like, we need to change things. Like if not me, then who, if not now, then when, and uh, it just sort of all, you know, followed. 
This is so deep. Okay, so first of all, shout out to being a real Frisco girl, though. I mean, for real. <laughs> Second of all, what y'all need to know, I mean, I'm in Atlanta now, but let me just tell you, as a Frisco, well, I'm going to give myself like Bay Area because, you know, I grew up in Oregon. Yeah, you know, I spent some time in Frisco, actually. I lived a half a block away from the stud on 9th and Harrison. That's where I live now. Oh my gosh. I lived on <laughs> Sheridan Street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You did? Okay. Um, also, Supervisor Matt Haney, or excuse me, <clears throat> Assembly Member right. Matt Haney, um, you want to know we have like such a funny little connection. So six degrees of separation. I dated somebody for a long time, five years, that before me, his sister dated. And then him and I met like Hell, years later when he was running for school board and we were chitty chatting and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> so, Amy, that name sounds yeah, familiar. Baby. So we, <laughs> you know, we just all connected like that. The Bay Area is small, honey. It is. There's a lot of people who um, are like, okay, okay, okay. That sounds like me. I, I feel like I could do that. But like, what does it even take to run for office? Oh, that is a really good question. Um, I will say that, you know, and I have this on good authority after, you know, getting to know the game and getting to know a lot of people from all over the country that San Francisco politics is its own brand of baby, crazy baby, um, and listen, intense. Listen. And Every town has its own intricacies and quirks and craziness, but San Francisco, you know, they say it's like a knife fight in a phone booth and it's real. It's very, very intense. So above all else, I think that you need to have a tough skin um, and, you know, an iron gut and be able <laughs> to be okay with the fact that people are not going to always love you. Hey. Um, because if you're going to make change, then you're going to make waves and that's going to upset some people. So you have to be ready for that. That being said, you know, I don't know that I was always ready for that, but I had some really good training grounds. I mean, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race was not a joke, like uh -uh. not, not even the competition itself, which was stressful in and of itself, but like, girl, those fans, they can really come for you if they're not and happy they with you. And they will, and they do. And you know, that's, you know, I get it. Like people are passionate. So that was a really good training ground for what I would experience um, going into San Francisco politics. Mm -hmm. And listen, I think that there are some really uh, great people that I have met through politics. I mean, you know, my, my, my former boss, I mean, really, truly, he's a mentor to me. I think he is such a good hearted person and somebody who truly cares and is such a talented politician. I've learned a lot from him. That's so there true. are folks like him and there's also some folks who are really toxic and who mm -hmm. come from this old school brand of, you know, slash and burn politics mm -hmm. who really are interested in sowing division to divide and conquer and maintain power for themselves and their people. And I think that if more folks who are not interested in creating positive change and actually coming up with practical solutions that work aren't running for office, then we just let those people control it. And uh, I'm not down with that. Look, okay, I got to do this because um, I believe in rigor. And, you know, a lot of times people do the thing where they're like, oh, my God, you're going to be the first ever blah, blah, blah to hold whatever role. But like, make it make sense for me because yes, representation matters, but only if that person is a champion for our communities in that role. Mm. So talk to <laughs> me. You know what I'm saying? Like, yes, I, do. I don't just like support black people because they're black. I'm like, mm, 
sometimes black people do harm to black people. Yes. But I fucks with you, honey. So let me ask you to answer this question. Yes. What is going to be different in City Hall when you as a black trans woman are the supervisor for District 6? Well, I want to answer that question. And I also want to answer, I think, like the another sort of branch of that, which is first that I don't think people should vote for me because I'm the first. I think that they should vote for me because I'm clearly bar none the most qualified and experienced. Come here. Come here. Like I, not only did I grow up in San Francisco, that's neither here nor there. Oh but no, it's I've there, worked... honey. And it's here. Because a lot of these people ain't even from here though. Right. Anyways. Okay. Well, I will take that. Yes. So not only did I grow up here, but you know, I literally have worked in this district for the last 20 years as a social worker, working with the with on our top issue of homelessness, of you know, people addicted to drugs, like getting them off the streets and into care. That was my job. And it was hard. And I've seen what is wrong with the system. And I know now from my experience, my last four years working as chief of staff in the city on the legislative side, I also know it from that perspective as well. I'm a small business owner. I've owned a small business in this same district, right? So again, small business owner, social worker who's worked here for 20 years, worked in the district office for four years on all of our biggest issues, public safety, building housing, homelessness. Um, I also am chair of the San Francisco Democratic Party. So I am connected. I understand people. I've organized with people in SOMA for the last 10 years, writing that cultural district legislation, passing ballot initiatives. So I know this community. I've been doing this work. Nobody else running has that resume, period. So that's why people should vote for me. Mm. That being said, on top of that, it would be historic. And I think that representation does matter. And it obviously, who we are informs, um, our experiences inform how we lead. And as someone who has been discriminated against, who continues to be discriminated against because of my gender identity, who... God, and I just had this conversation last night with a Black woman who moved here eight months ago to be a teacher in San Francisco and was like, I don't know if I can stay. I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel like I have community here. People are afraid of me. This is not welcoming. And I said, you know what? Like, I hear you. Like, I, we forget how trying this is sometimes because we experience it on the daily as Black mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Um, the sort of microaggressions that we experience, the way in which, you know, there is a lot of anti-Blackness that we have to sort of move through and just sort of, you know, chug along and move on with our lives because otherwise we would just never leave our houses. And, you know, I had a very frank conversation with her and I was like, listen, it is hard, but when you find your community and it clicks here in San Francisco, it is magic. And, you know, I don't know if eight months is enough time. Mm-hmm, you know, you that. might want to give it two years, yep. see how it's going. And who wants to move that often anyway, right? That's right. And see how it goes. So anyway, um, going back to your question, how am I going to be different? I believe deeply in equity. Um, I don't, I know that people talk about wanting to help. People talk about reparations and all this stuff and, it's not just lip service for me. I've been working on equity issues my entire career. Um, I understand what that means. I know that it means not just opening the door, but also giving people the tools they need to be able to walk through it and survive. I believe in transformational leadership where we're bringing people with us. Like I think, you know, I want to empower more trans people, more black people, more women to be in these positions of power, uplift their leadership, give them the tools that they need and the experience that they need in order to fill these spaces themselves. Because again, if we don't do that work, 
then what we're actually doing is just taking up space. And we're oftentimes doing it in a way that is actually hurtful to our communities because just because we made it doesn't mean everyone else can. We all have privileges and things that we bring to the table that you know are unique to us that may allow us to succeed. Not everybody has those same opportunities afforded to them. So when we do have those, and that's actually, you know, that's a big reason why I'm running. Yes, my family were refugees. Yes, I'm Black and trans. But I also know that I had the opportunities of my education. I had, you know, the fortitude and the ability within myself to put myself out there. Um, I was able to develop that tough skin and I was given a platform, a national platform through RuPaul's Drag Race. I'm not going to, you know, deny that that allowed me to launch off and do other things. So given these opportunities, I felt like it was incumbent upon myself to do something with it. And running for office now is a part of that. Um, And I want to open doors for everybody else so that they can also come and do that same work, even if they don't have those opportunities. And just like that, it's time for our weekly roundup of all the things Lady Just Ain't Gonna Do This Week. Number one, more mass shootings, this time in Indiana. 20 years old, rifle and a pistol, more than 100 rounds of ammunition. Gunman killed three people and injured two. What stopped him? Not police. It was another bystander who had a gun, who happened to be shopping with his girlfriend. Now, every week I wrestle with this, whether or not to even keep listing all of these violent acts and all the ways in which money and indifference has become paramount to human life. But I cannot turn away. It's not lost on me that Black communities have been aching over gun violence for the better part of 30 years, and the only national outcry has been to criminalize. When Black people shoot, we get bipartisan legislation that criminalizes Black people, but never the gun manufacturers. President Joe Biden, when he was a U.S. senator, was a part of that. So were Black churches and clergy and Black organizations. They were all, at that time, calling for punishment, but they were also calling for increased services, economic opportunities, education, and other safety net supports. So what you got was so-called liberal legislators who joined with conservative legislators, and they all agreed to pass laws to keep the Blacks in line and focus on punishment while doing very little about what puts guns in the people's hands in the first place. But when it comes to young white men who have been radicalized, we have very little response. I mean, besides thoughts and prayers. After Sandy Hook, after Parkland, after every fucking mass shooting, whether it be in a church while people prayed, or whether it be in a school while people played. And yes, there was a bipartisan gun control bill that was passed this week, and we are going to talk about that in the Lady Likes section because we have to. And, 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 I do need to say and keep saying that we got to where we are now because we have not yet had the courage, and we still ain't showing the courage, if we're being honest, to go up against the gun lobby. This week as well, the criminal trial for the Parkland shooter got underway. Nicholas Cruz killed 17 people at his high school, telling one student to get out because things are about to get bad. Now, last October, Cruz pleaded guilty to 17 counts of murder and 17 counts of attempted murder for killing 14 students and three teachers. This trial will determine not whether he's guilty or not. He already pleaded guilty, but whether he gets the death penalty or life in prison. And the trial's going to take months. 
we're going to spend months on punishment. But are we going to spend even half the time figuring out how to delegitimize the gun lobby? You decide. Now, wait, 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 hold up. Jesus and Miro got beef? Man, oh hell nah. First monkeypox and now this shit. It's been way too much loss over here, and I swear to you, I really can't take no more breakups. Word out on the street is that the hit duo Jesus and Miro are breaking up, and that means no more shows. I know. Now, I am one to gossip, having been the subject of much bullshit myself. But let me just say that word out on the street was that the split was not amicable. Now, since the news dropped, the stories have all been scrubbed to sound more friendly, but it really does seem like there may have been some tensions behind the scenes, which would be really sad. Now, those of us out here will never know the true story of what went on in there, but nonetheless, let's send our love to this duo. They're going to be fine. Prayers up that they're able to grow stronger than ever. Other things that Lady just ain't going to do this week is missing text messages. Say what? Now, this don't make no goddamn sense, and then also it makes all the sense, and that's what's so sad. So a few weeks ago, we revealed on this illustrious show that if it wasn't for the Secret Service on January 6th, Trump would have been in the Capitol himself whiling out with the rest of the weirds. But we're now hearing that the Secret Service deleted text messages from that day. In fact, they're not recoverable. So much for the shout-out to the Secret Service. That sounds shady as fuck. All right, so let's jump into the things we love this week. Number one, executive orders on Roe. All right, so this week, just like last week and the week before that, folks have been scrambling and reorienting around the recent Supreme Court ruling that effectively overturned Roe versus Wade. The executive order directs the government's health department to expand access to medication abortion, which is basically pills that are designed to end pregnancies, and to ensure access to emergency medical care, family planning, services, and contraception. It also offers the protection and the privacy of patients and their access to accurate information, and it's supposed to be promoting the safety and security of patients, providers, and clinics. And the executive order also says that there needs to be a coordination of the implementation of a federal effort to protect reproductive rights and access to health care. Now, Lady loves that this action was taken, though truth be told, an executive order in this case is more symbol than substance. For now. One, because, again, it only applies to federally funded or overseen entities. And two, because it essentially is directing the Secretary of Health and Human Services to figure it out. And they have like 30 days to do so. This one made it on the Lady's Love list, but only ever so slightly. I mean, the devil is in the details. What we do know is that for now, some group of people has been directed to figure out how to get around the mess that the Supreme Court has made. And that's why it's on this week's Ladies Love list. Other things we love this week is bipartisan legislation on gun control. I mean, this week, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act was signed by President Biden, and it represents the most significant new federal legislation on guns since the now expired 10-year assault weapons ban from 1994. This bill gives $750 million to help states implement and run crisis intervention programs to close loopholes that would have allowed intimate partners who didn't live together and weren't married and didn't have children, but if those partners were convicted of domestic violence, they had access to a gun, right? So it closes that loophole. It also encourages states to include juvenile records in background checks, 
and it increases funding for mental health programs and school security. It also got after people who sell guns as a primary source of income, but they're not like registered federally as a licensed firearms dealer. Okay, okay, okay. Well, here's what Lady loves about this piece of legislation. All the funding that is being directed towards crisis intervention and mental health programs. This is important and necessary, mostly because so much of the funding needed to address challenges in our communities was fucking gutted by Republicans years ago. It's an important start, but there absolutely should be more to come. It's interesting, too, to see Senator Kristen Sinema of Arizona as a co-author of the bill. I mean, given all the shenanigans she done put us through. Now, this is a clear sign that she is scared that she finna lose her job. And you better bet, bet, bet that she will be talking all about what she did with this legislation all the way to November. But remember, kids, fuck her, though. For real, for real. (laughs) For real. All right, y'all. Welcome back to Ladies Love Notes, where we give you all of the real about being single and dating in your 40s. Now, in today's episode, we take on a question that is a little complicated, Can you get through a breakup without a crutch? Now, there is a commonly held wisdom that to get over someone, you have to get under someone. This is otherwise known as the infamous rebound. And we tend to think that after a breakup, it's good to get back out there and try your hand again at dating. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I've heard it a lot, actually. When my ex and I broke up after 17 years together, it wasn't not three months later that one of our friends was telling us both that we needed to be dating, dating, dating. Date a lot. Date everybody. Date, 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 they declared. I mean, this might have been because my ex was in fact dating someone three months after we broke up. But look, I think the intention here was to make us feel like it was normal to be doing so. I was seeing people. I mean, like casually. But anyways, the implication, of course, is that you should hurry up and find someone new. And yet after a year now of super confusing, tumultuous, oh my God, what am I doing type shit? I think I can testify that maybe instead of saying date, 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 we should be encouraging people to heal, heal, heal and grieve, grieve, grieve. The thing about being newly single is that you recognize that you have all kinds of options available to you that likely weren't available before. I mean, this is part of what I think is like kind of wrong with monogamy. It's like people who didn't party in high school and they get really bananas in college because they were restricted from a thing that has now become the thing they want to do because they couldn't do it before. I never had binges in college because I'd done so much experimenting in high school. By the time I got there, I didn't need to do anything just to do it because I had already done it already. When you are newly single, you're trying to figure everything out. Sex, romance, dating. But on top of that, you're being asked to figure out who you are outside of a relationship. It's actually a huge opportunity to touch those tender parts and say, hey, sugar, what do you need right now? The other thing, and perhaps the most important thing, is that when you end something with someone that was significant to you, There is loss there. And when there is loss, you absolutely must, without a doubt, grieve. Now, 
Grief is the hard part of breakups. It's the nasty part. It's the part where we start tearing ourselves apart. Why did this happen? Why have I lost someone I care so much about? Why didn't it work out? Why didn't they choose me? What did I do or what did I not do? Inside of separation, there's loss. And when we lose, we are being called to excavate, investigate. Who am I now? What do I want and what do I need? And how can I give that, what I want and what I need, to myself, not just somebody else? Now, rebounding allows us to give and receive what we want and need to someone else and get it from someone else in exactly the same state we've always been in. And so we model the same patterns somewhere else with somebody new. I'm going to tell y'all, I have been adamantly anti-relationship since breaking up with my ex. Even though I felt super hard for someone, I could not be in a relationship with them. Mostly because even though I really wanted the stability in a time of what felt and still feels in ways like complete chaos, I also wanted the healing of learning who I am not in a relationship. Coming off of nearly two decades of my life, I felt I owed it to the memory of what that was for me, as well as the next person I decide to stand still with for a little bit, to do the work of knowing that I don't need that relationship to stand on my own two feet. Giving to myself everything I'd been giving to someone else and everything they'd been giving me. I mean, how can I give myself stability without trying to find it somewhere else? That means I'm doing and have done some of the excavation work of who I am and who I be in relationships and what I bring to them. Now, after 17 years with someone I loved very much, the next person I'm going to be with is going to be a level up for me. Not the thing that soothes my insecurities about being single. Being single doesn't always feel like a flex, but it is, honey. Trust me. You really learn who you are and what you're made of. The next person I'm with is going to know that for me, this is going to be a long road and it'll be fine to just stand still for a minute and not be talking crazy shit about marriage or any other long-term commitment. Even saying it makes me itch. Like, if you know I've been in a 17-year relationship, you gonna make me itch if you start talking crazy like that. That's a fact. Look, I had a brief fling with a woman after our breakup who started giving me lesbian U-Haul vibes almost immediately leaving shit at my house, wanting to spend the night, etc. Man, uh, no. Right now, I'm still like, don't leave your shit here. Not your toothbrush, not your sweatshirt, not your glasses. No, you cannot spend the night. If I decide to introduce you to my folks, my peoples, not my parents, maybe that's when we can talk about it, but not a second beforehand. And really, I might just want to see you a couple times a week, but just for sex. I don't know. I'm appreciative to my girlfriends on this one. They know I'm a serial monogamist. And so my girls, because they love me, remind me to keep things light, to savor the experience of being interested or interesting to someone else, but not dive into routine or pattern or a relationship with that person. In my single life, I've been learning about how not to fix things for others or even take on other people as projects. I've been resisting the urge to project that I'm out here living my best life. Because instead, what's really true is I've chosen to say with vulnerability, this shit is hard and you really just take it one day at a time. Lots of things are going well for me right now. 
And some days, even though that's true, it's fucking overwhelming and hard and scary. Both things exist at the same time. I had lunch with my friend Lee the other day, and shout out to you, my friend. You're a good-ass dude. (laughs) And he reminded me that one year out from being in a 17-year relationship is actually not that far along. I've been single for one-seventeenth of the amount of time I was in a relationship. So let that sit for a second. There are so many discoveries I'm making about who I am in relationships and what I bring to the table. And it's good, and it's bad, and it's ugly, honey. There's so much I'm learning, even as a person who loves being alone, about what it means to be alone. Thanks to the good advice of my friends and my therapist, I'm not really dating anybody right now. If anything, I would say I'm exploring dating and whether or not I can even handle something more than physical. If I can find someone I can have a good time with and who makes me laugh, excellent. Even better if the sexual chemistry is on point, but that's about all I can do right now. I'm open to love, but I'm starting with myself. So my friends, when you are newly single and dating in your 40s, or if you're the friend of someone who is, remember that it's also okay to not keep pushing for people to date, date, date. We can encourage each other to heal, 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 and grieve, 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 and work, work, work on our shit so that when we do finally enter a relationship or even start to date, that we know how, what we bring, and what we want. That way, we don't end up bleeding on people who didn't cut us. We don't say we can do more than we can just because well-meaning but wrong people tell us we should. And we can honor where we've been, what we've been through, what that was, and give it its proper goodbye, leaving room for what's next. people find out more about you and if they like what they see support your campaign absolutely um they can find me at honeymahogany.com um there's information about my campaign there how to volunteer honestly the main thing that we need is money honey because uh (laughs) those donations are real i mean they really are how we run our campaign and get the word out to the voters and unfortunately you know i know that you know they're gonna start you know putting up hit ads and attacking me and in order to combat that we just we 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 got to get some funds in there so that we can communicate with the voters so um the maximum contribution is, is actually comparatively small It's only $500. I know that's a lot for some people, but not for everybody. And if you're one of those people that you're, you know, $500, you know, eh, that's something I can do. Please, you know, consider donating to my campaign so that I can make some real change and we can all make history together. All right. Well, I got 500 on it. And let's see if ladies, listeners will help match her to make it an even thousand, honey. Let's do it. It was awesome having you. Thank you so much, honey. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. That's it for Lady Don't Take No, but I will be back here next week with a new conversation and some news you can use. And if you need a little relationship advice, head on over to our Ladies Love Notes listener form, which you can find in the description on the platform you're using right now. I might read your question on the show. We'll get through this journey together, honey. I promise you. Don't forget to follow us on the socials because we're always posting about our guests and how to support their work. On Twitter, we're at Lady Take. 
On Insta, we're at Lady Don't Take No Pod. We're also on Facebook at Lady Don't Take No Podcast by Alicia Garza. Please subscribe and write us a review and let the people know what you've heard here today. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our incredible theme is by Latirix. And this pod is supported by the Black Futures Lab. And I'm your host, Alicia Garza. Remember, quit telling people to date, date, date after they just got out of some long, intense shit. Tell them to heal, heal, heal and grieve, grieve, grieve. That's right. I said it. Because lady don't take no. Lady don't take no shit. Insist on respect the sister. Walk around like a woman. She won't speak less of something worse. Singing don't play. The girl take herself so seriously. People stare curiously. She got a natural way. Her hips sway furiously. Never luxurious. Carries herself like the cutest. Love y'all.